Well, hello and welcome to our year-ending Formula E podcast. Uh, joining me, Andrew Vanderberg, on today's show is Formula E lead commentator Jack Nichols. Um, we've not had Jack on the show for a long time. In fact, Jack, I'm not sure that you and I have ever appeared on one of these shows together. I think the last time you were on it was in the, the old days before, it, before we couldn't afford a host and I had to do it for nothing. Yeah, that yeah, I started, didn't I, as the host of the Formula E podcast on the race, the hyphen race. Got sacked. You came in, undercut me, and uh, and yeah, I have I haven't been back since. But I've obviously listened to all of your podcasts, all of Sam's conversations with various people, and and the, obviously they've mostly been good. Mostly, and I think that's as good a pattern average as anyone can hope for. <laughs> this is going to be the exception. <laughs> it's always started in that light, hasn't it? Uh, and obviously, joining us is our supposedly our man in the know, Sam Smith. Um, it's going to be quite chilled in format. Um, we'll probably start interrupting one another. Uh, I'm definitely going to go off the script here, but it's only about four lines long, so there's plenty of wriggle room. Um, and we'll see where it goes, hopefully without ending up in the hands of the lawyers, but you never know. Right, so let's just uh, start it up by looking at our moments of the season, if anyone can remember that far back. Uh, I've had to watch a few highlight reels in order to refresh my memory. So, Jack, I mean, you were, had to commentate on all of these, so hopefully you can recall them more easily than I could. Um, what's going to be your opening memory of the year? I think Monaco last lap will, will, will be living long in the formulary memories because the Monaco race on the whole was a very good motor race and the last lap down to the wire was just tremendous with De Costa going around the outside of Evans at the, at the chicane. And it was just, it just, it kind of just proved everything that Formula E could or can be about on a great circuit. You've got these cars that can overtake. Okay. There's attack mode, which is sort of uh, not gimmicky, but a sort of strategical element to it. But overall, it was just a great motor race. And even people who didn't like Formula E or think Formula E is silly or whatever were texting me going, OK, that was actually a really good race. A, a, a perfect example, actually, is John Watson, uh, who Sam and I worked with in GTs a few years ago. And he's always texting me going, oh, you know, Formula E is rubbish. Formula blah, blah, blah. I thought you were going to do your Watson impression there, Jack. Well, I thought about it, but I thought you didn't want us to be libelous. So I thought <laughs> I, I thought, I thought I better not. But, you know, he's like, right, Formula E, Jacko, what a load of rubbish, all of that. And he texts <laughs> me after Monaco going, yeah, that was a really good race. Really enjoyed that. And that, to me, is what Formula E can be in the, in the right circumstances. And hopefully we'll see a lot a lot more of that this year and it was just a tremendous tremendous motor race no matter what the motor's made of can you remember the amount of hand ringing that went around or you know will the cars go up the hill could they do the full lap oh it's going to be embarrassing how slow they were and all that was just total nonsense isn't it once you've got cars that are actually racing wheel to wheel no one really cares how fast they're going exactly and that's the thing with you know british touring cars aren't going very fast but people love watching the British touring cars and myself included. And yeah, okay. Formula E is not formula one in terms of pure pace. And I'm not sitting here saying that because obviously in my position, I always end up trying to tread this line of not because I don't want to be one of those persons that's like, Oh, formula E is way better than F1 because there's actually overtaking guys in that weird sort of, um, you know, cynical passive aggressive kind of way. I absolutely adore formula one, but, Formula E that on that circuit absolutely suited it perfectly in the ways that maybe 1960s F1 cars did. 
did, you know, because they're pretty much very similar, right? Pretty, uh, you know, there's kind of no aero, similar size, I would imagine, and um, maybe a little bit bigger, but you, you get the point. That is the kind of track that it's made for. So in no way am I saying Formula E is better than Formula One, but on a track like that, it was it was, it was was spot on. So, yeah, no, I'm just agreeing with Jack, which is a rarity in itself. Wow, but, what a way to know, start the show. Probably, <laughs> it's it, it's, it's, it's going to get worse from here. I I think what it evidence was that Formula E they can overtake in areas which Formula One would never even consider overtaking at Monaco. I mean they rarely overtake anyway. There were moves into Mirabeau, there was that amazing move up the hill by Evans on the Costa. Um into the chicane is really the only area that we've seen Formula One cars overtaking. The odd one at Sandovot maybe if it's you know, if it's a slam dunk overtake. But as well, yeah, I went up to the Mirabeau um, sort of stretch from Casino down to Mirabeau with uh, colleague Matt Q during the free practice session. And you're exactly right by saying that it doesn't matter how fast they go. I mean, the fact that they are within an inch of the Armco and you have that backdrop of Casino and you have the undulation of that sort of that area of the track just made it all the more spectacular. And, you know, I thought I thought actually it was a it was a, an away win for Formula E. Uh, compared to what happened in the Grand Prix two weeks later, which was again another dull one. You get how many good Monaco's do you get as a race? One out of ten. I mean, everyone waxes lyrical about the '92 race between Mantle and Senna, but actually, if you break that down, it wasn't much of a race. Mantle was never going to get past Senna. Whereas in Formula E, if you have something that we saw with Frantz, De Costa, and and Evans, you know, you've got a three-way battle with multiple position changes. So I thought that was great for Marie, but it was much needed after what happened uh, two weeks previously in Valencia. Yeah, and, you know, we met referencing that F1 race. That was the best qualifying session of the year, right? Um, with Leclerc put on pole and then stacking yeah. it, whatever, and probably the worst race of the year. And, and you know, probably the opposite in Formula Although I think qualifying there was pretty damn exciting as well, wasn't it? But... It does go to show, right? You're right, Jack, about those the down, the the cars suiting the circuit and not having that downforce and and being able to bang wheels, right? They're they're solid. Those cars they can withstand a little bit of argy bargy and, and carry on. They're not they're not super fragile. Yeah, which they're going to change for Gen Three, unfortunately. So it'll probably revert back to you know broken suspension. We haven't the season, season one wishbones, are we? You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, we'll dig those up from the from a rusty beach somewhere here. Yeah. Sam, go on then. What's your uh, opening memory of the year? Yeah, I've chosen J Jake Dennis at Valencia. Uh, it was only his fourth, I think, or maybe fifth Formula E race. He, he came from nowhere, actually. I mean, we all know about his junior career, but in the sense of international single-seaters, it, it was, you know, his career was done, or seemingly, at the end of 2020. For 21, he got the gig with uh, with BMW, teammate to Max Gunter, who himself was, you know, had announced himself the previous season with a couple of wins. He wasn't expected to do much. There was no pressure on, on, on Jake, but he had a shaky start, came to Valencia, just surprised everyone. I mean, a flawless display, I thought, in that second race. It was actually the only the second race all season that didn't have any kind of um, race suspension. There was no full course yellows. There was there was nothing. So it was actually a really difficult race to run. And the feeling was, I, I remember throughout the whole race, even before it, the talk was that you didn't want to be leading this race for, for energy management purposes in particular. Um, and he was actually at one point, if you remember early in the race, he was sort of kind of pussyfooting around the track for a couple of laps going, 
you know, after after you, whoever was behind him, Alex Lynn, I think it was, wasn't it? And um, Alex wouldn't bite. And Jake then but basically built a buffer and, and won at a canter. Um, and I just thought that was super impressive, all the more so because, you know, he, he'd only just come into Formula E and, and hadn't had many test days, had a load of sim work, which I think goes some way to saying that actually this might be the race where the driver in the loop simulator has had the most bearing on a on a race victory in Formula E because I'm pretty sure if you ask Dennis about well, the work that he did in the Munich Sim of BMW, that helped him massively into executing that victory. And uh, yeah, fair play to him. I thought that was excellent. And then he backed it up with a, another a different kind of win in, in, in London and he was head and shoulders the best rookie of the season. Did you think that's the most impressive rookie campaign you've seen? Oh, undoubtedly, and and I, I'm a huge Jake Dennis fan, and I'll I'll get onto that a little bit later on in the show. I think that race was a bit of a huge anomaly in that it was a wet, dry qualifying session, so everyone who was in Group Four basically made it through to Super Pole. So that's why you had people, you had Nato, Lynn, Dennis, Lotterer all fighting at the front. So I don't. And and I think Lynn would have won that race had he not been turned around by Nato because he was just sitting behind waiting, you know, biding his time. And that's not to sort of uh, take anything away from Dennis, because, as I say, I'm a huge, huge fan. I think he was phenomenal and he's had the best rookie season ever. But I think that was the I think that was the dullest race of the of the Formula E season. So for it to be Sam's Sam's <laughs> number one moment is a, is a bit of a baffling one to me. But I'm a huge Dennis fan. And um, he he drove absolutely fine in that race. Well, let let Dull, Dull Sniffer interject there for a second, please, if I can. <laughs> if you go no back to, stop you. <laughs> what's it called? The 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 film that's just come out. Jack, you're in it. James Bond. Waffling over it, not that one. The unplugged, unplugged. Oh, um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If you if you watch that episode, um, I can't remember the drivers. There's a couple of drivers in Park Ferme. And they say one of them asks who won. They say Dennis, and they were, and the other one goes what from pole. And they go, Christ, that's that's impressive. It may have been De Vries actually. Um, his, I remember speaking to a couple of the other drivers as well in the in the media pen, and they were they were effusive in their praise for how Dennis won that race because, like I said, they didn't think it was possible to do it from the front. And irrespective of who was behind him or not, um, I just think yeah, that was that, that was an impressive thing to do, especially as a rookie. My memory of the year is probably influenced by the fact that I had, uh, for one of the first times ever, because normally I'd be in the media centre, was fortunate enough to have Porsche hospitality um, for the Berlin finale. Oh, um, so you were so you were you were you were battered instead of watching it like sensibly on the on the TV screens in the media I mean, centre. Battered might be a, a little bit of a. I mean, I was on my way. <laughs> I mean, I was. I, I, thought, I was certainly enjoying myself. He was and, refreshed. Uh, best best refreshed. race I've ever seen. <laughs> And they had this viewing platform, but it was towards the end of the grid. So we were all out standing there. I think I was standing on a chair or something because those German guys tend to be quite tall. Um, chewing, so a pork knuckle. <laughs> chewing his pork knuckle as he was. <laughs> chewing, chewing on a pork knuckle. Um, so I could see what was going on. And But we were like maybe the penultimate row of the grid. So by the time it all got down to where it was all happening, you know, we could hear the thud, but it was almost impossible to see. So just there was this exodus of people all swamping back inside to see the tv screen so we could see a replay of what was happening and just the reaction the the disbelief among people of of, of what we've just seen take place with those two guys 
plowing into one another. Um, was just, you know, pure theatre. We were speaking before we came on air about the, the final round of the F1 series, but that seemed unbelievable at the time, didn't it? That the two championship rivals could collide into one another off the line like that. And yeah, I mean, to be experiencing it in that way will will stick with me for a very long time. What happened after that, maybe not so, because they, you know, the drinks did come around quite freely. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it was just remarkable that, and it was it was a classic for wasn't it? Evans had it not in the bag exactly, but very, very, a very, very strong position. Because what Mortara was starting, Evans was something like sixth, and Mortara was twelfth, something like that. And it looked for all the world as though Evans had it under control, and then he just doesn't move. He just didn't move, and it's the only time. I think in however many Formula E races there have been, how many have there been, Sniffer? Oh God, knows. Wait, okay, wait, I thought wait, I put you on the spot there, but no, 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 it's fine. It's too late. It's too late. You don't know. It's over seventy, isn't it? Seventy something. I don't know. Exactly. But in all of those races, I've never seen a car just not get off the line at all. And the fact that it's then Mortara that collects him, and the fact that it's then Dennis who's out of the race on the restart lap, it was just like, what are we? Watching it was like 1982 Monaco, wasn't it? Where nobody wants to come through and win the race. Derek Daly could win this race. <laughs> is that Peroni? It is! <laughs> <laughs> so, back to you, Jack. Number two. I'm not sure these are hierarchical, by the way. It's just no, I didn't, I, didn't them write, I didn't write them hierarchically. But uh, I'll go back to Evans, actually, for this. Because one of my moments of the season was him putting it in the wall in New York. What was it? Penultimate lap? of the second New York City E-Prix. He was about to finish second to Sam Bird. He was about to, I think, take the... He would have taken the lead of the championship, I think, ahead of Bird in second. They would have been one-two, the, the the Jaguar drivers. And then just coming through that right-hand sequence of two and on the exit of three, just taps the wall, damages the car. And that was the moment where I thought, at the time, you think, oh, he was about to sort of win the championship. Now it's all gone. And then after the race, I thought, well... It's like a real uh, sliding doors sort of moment because that crash almost won him the championship. Because if he'd have been going to London in Group 1, he wouldn't have scored many points. Maybe he'd have scored a couple and then he's still in Group 1 for Berlin. But that crash gave him the run-up he needed, Evans. It meant he could finish third in the second race in London and still be outside the top six, then third in Berlin. And all of a sudden he was in he was the the championship favorite because of that crash in New York. And that's the weird way that, that Formula E worked, especially with the group qualifyings that, that thankfully aren't going to be a thing anymore. So hopefully it'll all be a bit more balanced, but that Evans moment basically summed up Formula E in that you've crashed out of the race. And that's the, that's the thing that gives you the best opportunity of winning the championship. It's that kind of backwards logic that is the, the existence in which Formula E lives. I love the rule of unintended consequences, and that's exactly yeah. what happened. Full on sliding format. doors. Yeah, exactly. And you're quite right. How could that be beneficial? Right? It just doesn't compute. But yeah. you're right. <laughs> yeah. So my my second one's actually same venue. Um, a day later, um, or was it the same race? Same day. Yeah, it was the same day. Sam Bird. So uh, Bird had um, had crashed uh, crashed his car in the free practice session um the previous day and had done the tub um the last corner he just he just lost the car hit the wall um 
pushed a bit of suspension through the tub. That was done. They had a built-up tub. When I mean built-up, it has some rudimentary components on it and, and a wiring loom, um, and it was dressed, and he, he went out. But the next day, he put it on pole, and he won the race, which I thought was pretty astonishing when you imagine that after finishing the previous day's race, the team had to, you know, essentially... Uh, get the thing properly set up again and and do lots of extra checks on the car. I mean, I remember when they were rebuilding that car, swinging by the Jaguar garage and seeing every single member of staff, and I and I mean every single member: James Barkley, Gary Eckerold. Um, I think even even Adrian Atkinson himself was was maybe handing some spanners over and, and facilitating in some way. And they got it ready. What? Sorry, James James Barkley is rebuilding the car. He was he was assisting, yeah. They were they were helping sort of push the, um, you know, get the get the batteries and the components in place. I mean, I don't mean he was on his hands. He was fabricating a front He was he was he was spot welding part of the floor. No, he wasn't. But he was he was assisting as much as he as much as he could. And um, you know, I th- I think actually the last time I remember seeing that was Jean Paul Drio kind of rallying his troops at yeah. Montreal after Buemi smashed his car up in. Uh, in that infamous crash, but it was all hands to the pump. Bird went out the next day, pretty much dominated the event, pole and the win. And it was just a, it, it just a very memorable occasion. And, and you don't often get get it where there is such a sizable accident and then a win on the same weekend, separated by you know just a few number of hours. And it was a memorable day for more than that reason because it was also the day that England lost to Italy in the. Euro, um, the European Championships, and uh, Sam was doing the press conference um, at the time when Luke Shaw scored the opening goal, and there was a huge roar. And uh, Sam sort of um, did a nod and a wink and asked me who who had scored, and I wrote down Luke Luke Shaw on my pad and flashed it to him during the press conference, which was quite memorable. So it was um, a momentous day for lots of reasons, but I thought Bird was excellent that day. I mean, you know, it generally throughout the season, he was terrific. But to come back from that shunt and psychologically process that and turn it into a, a victory the next day is, uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty Herculean, really. Jack, had you uh, finished your voiceover work and were watching the football in the Emotion Club by that point? I wasn't allowed in New York. Oh. I was one of the, yeah, so I was one of those that had old visa troubles. So I came out of the studio that I was in in London, and yeah, the goal went in just as I was about to leave, and then I drove back as fast as I could and managed to watch the second half at uh, at home. So yeah, you missed all the good bits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some grainy CCTV footage which begs to differ, Jack, of you trying to force your way into Wembley. Um, so you might have to <laughs> explain that to uh, Mike and West when you see them next. Right? Yeah. But, We'll chop that out of the uh, the edit. I've gone way, way back to the first race of the season for my second one, which was that whopping crash that uh, Alex Lynn had. And the reason for that really is that it, it was the sort of mystery that surrounded it at the time where we, there was so little information about what had actually happened. And we've been very fortunate informally that there have been some quite big crashes, but no one um, seriously hurt at all. Um, but this, you know, really left so many question marks about what happened and whether he was all right and, and all of those sort of things. So maybe for all the wrong reasons, it, it was a, a key memory for me from that season. Jack, you must have not known what was going on in the commentary box either, did you? No, that's why it's not a very nice memory for me, really, because 
yeah, it was all quite, it wasn't very clear what was, what was going on basically. So, um, it was, it was quite a difficult, a difficult time that because everything was sort of carrying on as normal in terms of podium celebrations. So you sort of knew that it was okay, but then, but yet you didn't know it was okay. So it was, it was a very, very difficult situation that, and look, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, standard for me to, to be in those scenarios because this is motor racing, sadly. So, you know, I remember I was commentating on the 2014 Japanese Grand Prix with Jules Bianchi and there was a lot of mystery about what had gone on there, wasn't there? Because the race sort of ended and it was a red flag, but you never got to see like where Bianchi had gone and why. And then the race was over and that was sort of it. Because obviously in those scenarios, you don't want to, you can't show what has happened until you know that they're okay. So, and there was sort of very little information coming through from the, from the marshals and, and all that sort of stuff, because the focus was on getting Lynn, you know, okay. I mean, in, in the past it's, or in hindsight, it's frustrating because Evans went to see him and said, you know, are you all right? And he was like, yeah. And there you go, which you see quite a lot of in, in unplugged. But uh, yeah, at the time it wasn't, it wasn't lovely. There was a, there was a little bit actually just before the podium ceremony, when Sam Bird was heading up to the podium and he and, and Mitch stopped him, he was on his way back from um, Park Fermi, I imagine, and, and and you could just pick up on the mic that uh, Mitch said that that there'd been a monster shunt, a really big shunt with with Lynn. Put um, in an airplane crash or something, didn't he? Yeah, something like that. Uh, which is, you know, it, it's always a worry when a car flips like that, especially a single seater, you know, irrespective of. Of, of halo or no halo and i think you know when you when you look at that um that accident you know it's 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 pure chance that the car goes straight up in the air and not into the debris fence at the side so really unlucky in one aspect but but damn lucky in the other that that he was able to get out of that and don't forget these cars are, are pretty heavy and they have the, the battery in them so any kind of sudden stop which you know, Alex unfortunately had upside down when he hit the wall at the end. Is um, is potential for injury, thankfully, of which he he um, he came away with with very light, if if at all. So, um, yeah, very worrying moment. And afterwards, we saw the the CCTV footage, which was released, and obviously knowing that he got out of that unscathed, it was uh, yeah, very spectacular indeed. Right, Jack, you probably need to inject some levity into it now that I've brought it down by recalling that. So what's uh, third on your list? Uh, third on my list is is another crash, really. It's um, it's that Rome, Rome crash with the Mercedes and Degrassi and all of that, because that just blew up, really, didn't it? Degrassi was leading the race. It was all kind of fairly, uh, not standard race. It was a good race, but Degrassi had the lead. And then he just broke down and going up the hill through those blind corners... And everyone has to take evasive action. Van Dorn's out of shape and he's into the side of his teammate. And it was just carnage that really did a lot to swing the championship, actually. I think if Degrassi wins that race, I think he's in championship contention for the for the whole season. I also think that was just another another example of Van Dorn's ridiculously appalling luck over the course of the season. Like Van for me, Van Dorn was my driver of the year. Like he was, he left about eighty points on the table, didn't he? With all oh, the I th- retirements and, and stuff. Uh, but that were totally, totally not his fault. Not even like oh, unlucky to be there, but like totally not his fault. Van Dorn was my driver of the year, and uh, I think was phenomenal and didn't really put many feet wrong. Um, so uh, yeah, that was, uh, and it was just quite spectacular the way that Degrassi was involved, and they were all three wide, and it was all just 
carnage. It was a, a real sort of standout formatory moment of, oh, it's suddenly all kicking off out of nowhere. Yeah, and it all started with a broken drive shaft, didn't it? So, yeah. you know, I think Lucas was, was, it was certainly between he and Vern, and um, I think Vern claimed to have let him go, didn't he? And he was going to get him on the, the final attack mode, I think it was. And um, But yeah, Lucas's championship, I think you're right, sort of crumbled away at that stage um, through no fault of his own, really. Yeah, tough one to take. Um, and then, yeah, and then he did it properly the next day, didn't he? By creaming it into the wall after uh, a standard uh, Buemi contretemps uh, yeah. the next day. So, uh, yeah, wasn't a great weekend for Lucas. Rome always seems to do that, doesn't it? Even though the, the track layout had been significantly altered, there's something about that place that leads to these sort of incidents. Well, it's a proper it's a proper street track. Even though they've changed it, it's still, it's still got the right vibe. You know, Rome... Montreal are the, are the two that kind of stand out as as street tracks where you could run an IndyCar series or something. Maybe not quite IndyCar, but you know something like that. So, oh, I'd have loved to have seen IndyCar around Montreal. That would have been super. yeah, exactly. The 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 Rome track I always liken to Montjuic Park, the great Spanish um, street circuit in in Barcelona or close. To, yeah, it wasn't Barcelona, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah no, it wasn't. The hill at the bottom of the, of the city. Y- yes, yes, and. What, You've been around I, it, right, Sniffer? I have, yeah, many years ago. Yeah, yeah, you can you can trace most of the track, can't you? Fantastic, yeah. fantastic venue, elevation change, and, and uh, what? And thousands and thousands of stray cats. Loads of stray cats, and um, and not the terrible eighties jazz pop band. <laughs> and the last, the last venue for a for a female driver point scorer in Formula One, I think. Oh yes, indeed, Lola Lombardi. Yeah. Sixth in um, 1975 or six? I 75. think five. Yeah, yeah, it was the last race there, wasn't it? After, yeah. yeah, Rolf Stomlin's horrible accident uh, accounted for the for the race. But Rome in season nine with Gen 3 is going to be unbelievable. I mean, those cars, I you're going to read it on the site, actually. Um, it's going to go live a few days after we've recorded this. But I spoke to Benoit Trellier, the... Um, the test driver for the Gen 3 car who's conducted four or five days already of testing in the Gen 3 car. And he said that it wasn't far off uh, a super formula car in terms really? of, uh, in terms cool. of outright, outright speed. He said it's phenomenal and it is going to be mighty quick on some of these circuits. And on at Rome with the, the dips and the weaves and the bumps, it is going to be incredible. So I'm really looking forward to hopefully April 2023 when we can see um, this car, which I'm told is uh, pretty exceptional in terms of the, the, the hike in power and the lightness of it compared to the Gen 2 car. It's, it's looking pretty exciting on that front. All right. Cool. Right. You're up next, Sam. What's your uh, final one? Well, final one, I was really split between... Um, the Lucas loophole, and I was going to leave that for you to choose, V2B, because you had the copyright on that that term. I know you sort of got all that signed and sealed through uh, Company's House. So oh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I will soon. <laughs> got the paint so for it. I'm going to leave that. I'm just I'm going to, going to leave that because I think that's kind of been done to death. We we discussed that ad nauseum, didn't we, with uh, Roger Griffiths after the, did, yeah. after the Excel weekend. So what I'm going to go for is, I'm excited to hear Sniffer picking like the second most boring race of the season now and seeing what he can <laughs> conjure up as being a great reason. Yeah, some seventh place well. uh, economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember when Cassidy was eighth in Puebla in the opening race? Yeah, that. Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
talk to you now about Sakon Yamamoto's <laughs> and legendary. There wasn't a bit of wall we didn't hit in Bass to see that yet. <laughs> The, the residents were fine with everything else that happened that weekend. It was just Sakon Yamamoto that they were like, no, nah, Formula E's not coming back here. <laughs> he wasn't responsible for any of the damage to the uh, to the sycamores. Or was he? I don't know. <laughs> well, well, we'll, 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 we'll find that out in due course. Now, I'm going to go for Mercedes simply winning the title and then, um, and then foxtrotting um, a few days later. Uh, we got wind of the fact that Mercedes on the run-up to Berlin, were highly unlikely to continue in Formula E. Uh, and what a time for that decision to be taken, just on the cusp of them being up for the title, um, which they converted with, with Nick De Vries, and also took the um, the team's title as well. I, I spoke to Toto Wolff that weekend. It was a very awkward Toto Wolff, because he, he couldn't or wouldn't confirm the decision not to continue in Formula E as a manufacturer. But it was plainly obvious by his body language. I mean, I don't think Total Wolf would be, obviously in business he's extremely successful, but as a poker player, I'm not sure he'd be that fantastic because everything exuded um, a negative response to continuing in Formula E without absolute confirming it that weekend. And it clearly became obvious and, and, and we and others ran the story on the on the, the Saturday, um, I think just before the, the qualifying of, the first qualifying of, of the weekend. What, what I found really interesting was that Mercedes had thought long and hard about this because clearly uh, Wolf and Ian James knew about the decision. Uh, whether or not the team did, we're not sure. We think some possibly did. I think the, the feeling in the uh, back of the factory at Brackley and, and at HWA was that that is the way that it was going prior to Berlin. But it didn't affect their preparation and their focus for that crucial weekend. And it showed on the track because um, they, they delivered the goods. But, you know, what a what a sort of what a dichotomy, really, of 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 glory and, and soaking it up and then realizing, actually, you know, we're only doing this for another year. And then and then we're off a decision of which still baffles me and many others to this day. I mean, I I and others have investigated precisely why Mercedes decided to do it and have come up with two or three theories, which we've written about. But uh, an unfathomable decision when you consider the parallel of what they're doing in the automotive landscape and, and the, the electrification of, of their products in the future. Odd. But there you go. Formula E and sport can be odd at times, but... Yeah, a very memorable uh, storyline to follow that weekend on, on all fronts, really. What's going on with that team? Is there any movement on that, or is it still just banging uh, my thread? Yeah, as of Valencia, not much to report. Um, I think it's a combination of the fact that um, the, the, the the most active director in that in that company, Total Wolf, has been, let's say he's been a little busy the last few... He's got other things few, on his mind, yeah. He's got a few other things on his mind. Um, but you know now he's um, now he's uh, now he's practiced his uh, primal screaming into uh, radios and so forth. I think he he could probably um, he could probably have a bit of a, a sort of uh, a therapy session of, of calming down and looking at where it's for his Formula E team or part of he's part of the management of that team are going to go for 2023 because. At the minute, they're obviously not going to be manufacturers, so let's call it Team Brackley. They have to partner with another uh, manufacturer for them to be supplied with powertrains. Because they've made quite a lot of they've made quite a lot of signings and stuff, even over this winter, haven't they? You know, you think of uh, 
Stephen Lane, who's left Virgin where or Envision, where he's been for however yeah, many but, years, uh, and now he's Stephen, joined that squad. Yeah, but Stephen was signed early this year. No, um, no, agreed. But you've still got a lot of people joining now for what could just be one year. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if they're joining now. I think their team has been in place for you know for since early this year. Um, Stephen and and Peter McCool, of course, joined or agreed to join sort of February March time. Um, no, I, I'm I'm I know I, I know they agreed to join, but my point is they're still. You, you mean you mean yeah to, yes yeah, I know what you mean Jack yeah sorry I was I was being uh, I was being uh, unconsciously belligerent. It's kind of it's 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 the Rene Rast style, isn't it? Where he signs up to Audi before they're leaving. But then suddenly yeah, exactly. they are leaving and you're like, oh, OK, I thought I was here for the long haul. Exactly. And, and a lot of the HWA guys have moved over from from Germany to Brackley as well. So yeah. the emphasis is on they want to continue racing. They've got a great team. They've got great capabilities, technical and so forth. But they will have to do so as the customer to um, to a manuf- another manufacturer. Um, now, we're going to have a story which is going to come out in between this going live, I think, uh, been recorded, sorry, and going live, where... Oh, it will be. There's no way this is going out anytime soon. <laughs> what? So hang on. So this so this story you're talking about has already gone out? No, it hasn't. Possibly. It will do in a few days' time. So Right, but if um, someone's listening to this, it's already gone out. Indeed. No, I, I think the more you think about this, the more it makes sense. I mean, um, Jaguar and Team Brackley. Uh, they're 35 miles apart. They've got similar capable uh, capabilities in, in terms of infrastructure and technical resource. Um, and I think that it makes sense for Jaguar and Mercedes to, to partner up. And I, you know, th- th- there are discussions that are going on between lots of parties at the minute. But I see this as one that really has legs. And how does, how does um, that make sense for well, for, for Jaguar? Well, first of all, if if a if a partnership um, if a partnership happens, it happens because it is regulatory. You know, there has to be. Yeah. Um, you have to provide your powertrains. I mean, it's within the the, the regulations that that has to take place. Um, so, for Mercedes or let's call them Team Brackley, they have a, a choice of uh, Jaguar, Nissan, Porsche, Neo, and Mahindra. And DS, okay. Now, in in a COVID world, you would ideally want a partner that is as close as possible geographically. I think that's just a no-brainer um, because the liaison between the technical parties um, is is going to be paramount, and you have to have a similar culture or philosophy in the way you go racing. And I think Jaguar and Team Brackley have pretty similar cultures and they have pretty similar outlooks on the way that they go racing. So from a competitive point of view, it makes sense for Team Brackley and for Jaguar, if they're going to partner up with somebody, and the likelihood is that all of those manufacturers are going to have to because there are fewer manufacturers than there were in Gen 2 um, after the withdrawals of BMW and Audi, that Jaguar would be quite intrigued and they would be quite interested in working with Team Brackley because it would be another team that can help it um, and can assist with uh, with the technical running of the powertrain uh, using its resources and one that could work in a similar fashion to how Venturi's worked with with them or Mercedes in the in, in the uh, last few seasons, which has you know harnessed uh, harnessed a, a, a couple of wins and um, 
and, and taken points off its opposition, direct opposition. There you go, nice and succinct for you there, Jack. Beautiful. I'll go over it again if you want. Yeah, no, it, flawless logic. So when it when it doesn't happen, when it doesn't happen, we'll do another episode and I'll go over <laughs> it. Why it didn't happen. <laughs> so um, I am going to, to go back to London and the, the race at the XL for my final memory, but it's not the Lucas Loophole. It's the dump tackle that Dillbag did uh, <laughs> in the post-race that could have ended up absolutely horrifically. I mean, oh, I was, was millimetres away from, you know, paralysis or worse. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just came out of nowhere as well. And um, it was just <laughs> spectacularly uh, WWF, but in the completely the wrong setting. Yeah, when you look at that, if you do it, what I wanted to see with Jack and um, Nikki and Dario at some stage is a is an expert technical analysis of that shunt. So slow mos, we want uh, absorption rates, we want um, uh, structural integrity of of Alberto as he went down. Um, we want we want the full um, post crash. Um, uh, analysis on that one because uh, if we it, wanted to do it but the, the FIA won't they won't give us access to the data they just they just, they just won't I mean, that's got to be 72g right <laughs> <laughs> it was um yeah it was a sight to behold wasn't it um you know the the, the torsional rigidity of of Mr Longo was was pretty impressive in that in that shunt and um yeah, I think what they should do is put put him on one of those crash test sleds and, and drive him into a wall and see if he's got the full um, the full torsional rigidity to survive these things. A close second was obviously um, Alan McNish's run up to the stewards, but Dario covered off in detail in our season review, so uh, we'll we'll leave that one there. Yeah, the Alan Wells uh, impersonation for for all the kids out there. Yeah, that's uh, that's one for you, Gen Z. Um, got no idea what you're saying. No, and uh, I'm, I'm quite right, Jack. Quite right. Uh, just ignore him. Um, we're, recording <laughs> this, we're recording this the day after people who were professionally upset about anything were moaning that World Champ- Formula One World Championship runner-up Lewis Hamilton wasn't part of the shortlist for the Sports Personality of the Year. I mean, yeah, if you want to get upset about that, you probably need to worry about other things in your life. But what about the Formula E Personality of the Year? None of them are likely to make it onto the BBC shortlist anytime soon. But if you uh, had to pick someone. Jack, who would your selection be? This year, the person who has been the absolute most joy to me has been Jake Dennis. Because I never I never kind of got around to speak. I, I wasn't in testing for very long. And then Diria happened and Diria was all a bit of a blur. So I never actually really got around to speaking to Dennis until Rome. And it was like the Thursday in Rome or something. And I'm very, I'm not a particularly socially ept person. Ept? Adept? Apt? Adept. Whichever. Inept. One Inept. of those. I'm socially inept, so therefore I am socially ept. But um, anyway, I was like going, I was like, oh, you know, oh, excuse me, Jake, my name's Jack, and I, you know, in sort of a bit of an awkward way. And he just went, all right, mate, and then like walked to the front of the garage, jumped up on um, one of these big DHL boxes that the cars get delivered in, and just like sat down and was like, you're right, how's it going? And like just, well, then we just had like a full on chat, and it was just such a, nice friendly thing to do and he, then we just chatted and it was i don't know he was just really normal really friendly really open really honest then in monaco uh, he had a bad weekend but we were sitting at the te- same table in oh that was it and after valencia you know he's like, oh we're gonna have a few beers tonight or something didn't he say on the radio 
Yeah. And then after the next race in Monaco, we and he we he was having a drink and it wasn't a beer. I was like, oh, you're not having any beers tonight. And he's like, oh, I hate beer. And I was like, oh, but on the radio in Valencia after you said, oh, you know, can't wait to have a beer. He was like, yeah, but I didn't want to say vodka Coke. I didn't want to be like, oh, yeah, cool. We'll have a few vodka Cokes tonight, guys, because I thought that would sound a bit stupid. It's like, yeah, no, that OK, fair point. And I don't know the rest. Of the, he was just like a nice, genuine guy as well as being a phenomenal driver and okay yeah well done he won in valencia you know i wasn't quite as impressed by that as sniffer was but the rest of the year is it not burnt into your mind your memory of the year (laughs) exactly like it was impressive enough but it's not one of my top three moments of the season come on it's like you haven't been watching the series sometimes but he was absolutely superb best rookie ever and even today i was just literally now just on the old instagram and he's posted this story of how he's uh, he's put he, he didn't have any washing up sort of tablets for his dishwasher, so he just poured a load of like washing up liquid in, turned it on. Has it gone horribly wrong? <laughs> and then afterwards, it's gone hot. His whole flat is flooded with this foamy, yeah, foamy so. foam water and stuff. And he's but all of that stuff is just going up on his social. He's just such a nice, Brilliant. normal guy. And I like a lot of the drivers, but. Um, Dennis this year, just a real breath of friendly, fun, fresh air. And he's my personality. He's my formidary personality of the year. Oh, that's very well argued. It reminds me a little bit of when, uh, do you remember Formula 3 driver Tim Bridgman? You'll remember him, Peter, but you're old enough. I remember him from, from Porsche Carrera Cup in, in the UK, right? He won that a few times. Yeah, he? he did. He did. Yeah. He um, When he was doing Formula 3, he used to get involved in all kinds of um, mishaps and and incidents and um i remember I remember once he um he blew himself up in his own garden by throwing <laughs> something that had petrol onto a bonfire and blew himself into the next garden which uh, was very amusing um you remember that yeah i forgot all about um, it literally till then yeah vdb yeah. used to live next door suddenly had tim bridgman in his garden <laughs> <laughs> those sausages need a bit longer mate <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with Jack on the on on, on Jake Dennis. Uh, you know, and the thing is about that is that the reason he's he's just been himself. You know, he's not gone yeah. on. He doesn't go on media training courses every week. Or we love that. You know, we love a driver who is like that. You know, um, Sebastian Buemi is is like that in a very different way. That's why we everyone loves talking to Sebastian. The worst, um, in my mind, the, the most mind numbing thing is a driver who has been on exhaustive media sessions and and how to how to uh control every conceivable question i mean you know just just be yourself and 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 look and in the early days that was that was sam bird in the early days of formula e you you sort of sam bird was he was so he tried sort of so hard to be a formula one driver and he'd been such a professional and he kept that professionalism up when you came into formula e and that's like no criticism of that at all because if you want to get on in life you have to be professional i get that's why us three are here doing this podcast instead of like something serious and, and meaningful but the more bird has loosened up the more of a character he's become and you find out who he who he is and you know i find yeah. the same with robin france is just himself and jake yeah. dennis just second race of the season he's just himself all right mate i'm like oh yeah what's the worst thing what you know what's the most difficult thing to get used to he's like oh the brakes i'm used to doing gts where you just smash the brakes and now i actually have to try and break properly and it's taking a while to get used you know it's just all this honesty that is just such a such a, a pleasure and a rarity sam uh yeah so i have gone for 
Um, who have I gone for? Oh, yeah, right, so... <laughs> Is it me? Is it me? It's, no, it's not... Well, it I'm was, still my thunder. Like, I was going for Jack. <laughs> I was going for Jack, and then he slandered me over my choice of uh, Jake Dennis's superb winner at Valencia. Oh, yeah, anyway. yeah, that wonderful, that epic, dry, energy-saving race. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's what motor racing's one, all about. One for the purists, Jack, one for the purists. And I've gone for Antonio Felix da Costa. I mean, like Jack, you know, I there, there are so many. I mean, I, 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 can't, I don't really... I don't really have anyone in the in the in the paddock in terms of driving who, who I really really dislike. So, um, De Costa though is somebody who I think is is a terrific, obviously a terrific racing driver, but almost as as good a personality. Uh, irreverent, funny, um, doesn't take life too seriously unless he's been slandered by FIA officials at Valencia. Anyway, that's that's all in the past now. No, he is he's a terrific character, and I just I, I love his kind of. Um, relaxed clips responses to things, even when he's in the cockpit. I will give you an example, which I don't think was actually played, um, but one of his engineers told me um, what what occurred. I think it was at Puebla, and there was a struggling in a free practice session, and he was pretty much nowhere. And then in the second one, things came alive for him for, for whatever reason. And his, uh, his engineer, David Ladouche, I believe it's uh, pronounced, uh, came on the radio and said, Antonio, 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 we're, we're back in the game. To which Antonio responded, I am the game. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. And it's a shame that that wasn't, um, that wasn't broadcast. But, you know, things like that are really, really good. He's just got a nice outlook on life. He's, he's a pleasant person. Um, he, he doesn't take himself massively seriously. Um, and, and I just think he's great for the, for the championship. Um, I think he's terrific for the championship and the way that he conducts himself. A great champion and somebody who, you know, I think when he partnered up with Sean Eric Fern at Tachita for season six, I just think that, you know, he did a bit of a number on Jeff to some degree through sheer will of personality, almost like a slightly not orchestrated, but just like this is who I am. I've got no hidden edges. Uh, he can be tough when he wants to be, but I, I just like his, his attitude and, and the way that he comes across. Right. V to B, who's your personality? I'm going in for um, somebody that you probably both have talked to, but anyone listening is unlikely to be aware of. Um, and that's because uh, it was his final year in the paddock. And that's uh, Manolo, who was one of the original team at Formula E as the uh, director of events and was responsible for putting on those first season events and specking out the calendar and whatever. And he is just an amazing character. Uh, he worked with Lancia and Rallying in the 70s. He was there with Dorna as they were putting the uh, MotoGP project together. And he's just got the most amazing stories and the the, the greatest way about him, you know, of, of uh, I mean, he's a great engaging company. And uh, whenever I, I don't go to events very often these days, but when I do, I always, I always make sure that I take time out to speak to him. And I think he'll be a, a big miss in that paddock for those of people who know and like working with him. Uh, I'm just making sure he gets a bit of a shout out uh, before he goes on to whatever he is doing next, which is semi-retirement, I think, and a little bit of uh, some other stuff that's not really my business to talk about here. A great, a great character. And, and actually, he, when you're talking about Lancia, his voice uh, actually does sound oh, like a Lancia, so Lancia Delta Integrale. <laughs> it's not yeah. growling. Yeah, yeah, great guy. Yeah. Terrific guy. And he features in my book, which I don't know if I've mentioned. I, I, did you Have you written a book? 
I've written a book, and it's... You should, you should, you should talk about it sometime. This is just embarrassing. Um, and there are some ones that haven't been pulped, which is fantastic. I didn't get sent a copy. I had to buy my own. Just saying. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, if you can't, if you can't, if you can't understand the genius of Jake Dennis's winning Valencia, you're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, maybe I don't know anything about motorsport. Have you thought about doing it in audio book format? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get Manolo to read it. <laughs> why? Why not me? Great. <laughs> uh, or Jack. Jack could that Jack could read out. He could just gloss over all the uh, Valencia Jake Dennis stuff. Um, as everyone who might have just tuned into motorsport for the first time uh, this last weekend will have found out, it's not always fair, right? So, who were the biggest injustices, or what were the biggest injustices of season seven of Formula E, Jack? Stoffel Van Dorn. It's a two-word answer. I, I think Van Dorn. I alluded to it earlier. I think he was phenomenal this season, and the amount of injustices were just an outrage. So De Vries won in the first race in Diria. Van Dorn finished eighth. But Van Dorn was in group one. So and De Vries wasn't because he didn't finish that high last year. So that advantage De Vries. Race two, Van Dorn was looking strong, but the Mercedes weren't allowed to qualify because of Mortara's crash. Rome, race one, Van Dorn stuck it on pole and then got hit by Lotter on the opening lap. So went all the way to the back, got all the way back up to fifth, then was wiped out in that crash, which was a nonsense. The next day, and he just wins, and so that's fine. Valencia qualifies on pole, sent to the back of the grid for a for a tyre irregularity because they put the wrong numbers in, so he gets sent to the back of the grid. Very harsh. The next day in Valencia was, was wet and, and whatever. Monaco, they went a bit missing. Puebla and New York a bit missing. London, uh, and this is the ultimate injustice. Oh. He's about to take basically the lead of the championship and Roland, who I, who I adore, but just wipes him out and that's it. He's done. And so, so everyone has their stories of what could and should and possibly might've happened, but so many occasions where Van Dorn was just absolutely stitched up for no reason at all, other than pure luck. And so for me, Van Dorn is the, is easily the champion that wasn't the champion. Sam, who's your shout? Well, I've taken a sort of broader picture. I've, I've gone with Alex Lynn just from the fact that he won't be racing in Formula E next season, which I think is a bit of a travesty. Um, I know that Jack and I will uh, be completely aligned on this. We've had several lively discussions before, all of which I've won, uh, and I will win this one because I think Lynn really has evidenced how good he is. Um, he won a race in that Mahindra this year, which I don't think was, was far from. Um, the strongest uh, package. Based on what? You... Based on it qualifying at the front all the time? No, based on the fact that its its weight distribution was not particularly good and it ate its rear tyres on occasion. But um, I thought Alex, you know, mastered it extremely well, won the race excellently in XL, um, should have won another one, as you said earlier, Jack, at that momentous uh, second race in Valencia. Who could forget? But was, but was beaten by <laughs> beaten by Jake Dennis. Um, in one of the series' most iconic drives. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I just thought Alex was terrific, and he, you know, at least deserved another another crack at it. But Dilbert Gill signed Oliver Ola pretty early on in the season and uh, and went a different way, which is, is prerogative, of course. He's the, he's the boss of the team, but it meant there wasn't space for Alex. He was in discussions with uh, with Nissan. He had a possibility of going to, to Dragon, uh, which he um, 
which he didn't take up, and he's now in sports cars, and I'm sure he'll carve himself a terrific career there. Interestingly, for Gen 3, which um, I believe will reward smooth drivers, of which Alex is one, definitely, um, I would hazard a guess that Alex Lynn would be pretty high up on on some of the teams that are going to be racing in Gen 3 uh, for that very reason. So I expect it's a, it's a, an au revoir rather than a goodbye, and I think we'll see Alex Lynn back in a back in a Formula E car again. I, I do hope so, because I think he, he warranted another another crack at it. On, on a similar vein, I think I'm, I'm taking my injustice to be the fact that we won't have Tom Blomqvist on the grid next year. Um, there was a, I think it was done in ahead of season four, Jack. There was a load of filming done about who was the most underrated driver on the grid and Turvey was everybody's yeah. choice for that. And I don't think any of the teammates he's had have ever given him as much problem as Blomqvist did. Um, and while he may well have had a, an offer on the table, whatever it was, it was it wasn't enough to to keep him at, at Neo three three three. And I think it's a it's a real pity that, that certainly he won't be on the grid, and especially not in a car that would have been worthy of his talents. So maybe a, a bit like Lynn, he'll find his way back in in years to come. He did after he got binned off by BMW a few races into that uh, season earlier on in his career. So we'll see. Um, it wouldn't be one of these Formula E podcasts if we didn't get a calendar update from you, Sam. So, um, <laughs> what, what, what's the latest in the uh, ever-evolving world of uh, Formula E's calendar? Well, just thank the Lord we're not doing this for extreme E <laughs> calendars. But well, we got anyway, eighteen uh, options for each round. <laughs> yeah. So, what's uh, what has been announced at the the World Motorsport Council today? is that the uh, 5th of March race will, will now not take place. That was probably going to be Marrakesh. But with the um, the, the ongoing disruption of, of COVID and, and the new variants, it won't happen. So that race has been scratched. The China race, which we knew was highly unlikely, has also been scratched, meaning there'll be no racing between Mexico uh, in mid-February and the Rome race in early april so there's an eight week gap which we look we, we we've had this before haven't we it's not ideal but that's what uh, 18 months we've seen rounds one and two i seem to remember <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like it but yeah very difficult obviously to get a calendar in place in city center street tracks and um it, it, it's happened again what they're doing is they're still going to have 16 races so rome and the um, the Berlin races will become double headers, um, meaning that in addition to London, New York, Seoul, and Diria, there will be double headers in in Rome and Berlin, um, and that'll be it. So ten venues, sixteen races. I think if they can achieve that calendar, it's pretty good. But yeah, not ideal to have an eight week break, especially when it is in time in February and March, where there's not much other racing going on and and prime time to to make hay when when others aren't racing. But, well, yeah. the, the the Chinese race look, only one little defence of that. The Chinese race was the same weekend as the season opener for formula one in in bahrain so it's not like a it's not like an out but that fifth of march weekend would have been nice to have a race i don't disagree with that cool well that's uh, all we've got time for this week jack thank you very much for having you on board um i guess you're going to take give your voice a bit of a break now um before we go back to the business from diria in january yeah uh what's that a month away no about uh, yeah about a month a month and a week Five weeks is probably a better way to say it, but not that long. Depends on whether I finally edited this and got it out, basically. Well, that's true. So, okay, so I'll do a few versions. Only a month, just over a month, slightly under a month until the next race in uh, in Diria. Looking forward to it. And Sam, um, what your uh, 
you're going to put down the motorsport uh, fever for a few weeks and, and reacquaint yourself with your family. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'd be doing that. Um, usual, usual industrial drinking and uh, merriment. <laughs> so, um, well, what's he laughing at now? You. Gag. You're just being funny. If you do a gag, I'm going to laugh. Yeah, I mean, a gag, like a when gag, you a gag's not here. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to a break, but then yeah, ramping it up for. For Diria, so we've got some we've got some nice episodes coming uh, in January with Robin Frines and and um, and Gary Paffett for a season preview. So it'd be good to have somebody sensible and professional uh, in the other chair for us. You do a really interesting emphasis on Diria. You're calling it Diria. Everyone calls it Diria. It's quite interesting. Well, well, of course, but um, you know everybody knows it is Diria. Diria. Jack. Yeah. Right. Well, before oh. that descends into something <laughs> I really don't care about, um, I'm going to wrap up. So thank you very much for listening. Have a fantastic Christmas and New Year, and we'll be back, as Sam says, with a couple of exciting pre-season podcasts. Don't forget to check out all the other goings on on the Thank you very much, and goodbye. <laughs>